morning and welcome once again, Outer Assembly of God. Welcome back to the series entitled Rebuild. And uh, many of you have been with us either in person, you're watching or listening online. And so you've been with us as this Rebuild series. We've been taking a look at the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the, uh, the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Remember, just a, a quick review. And some of you, you could probably give this review even, even quicker and shorter, perhaps. Uh, but he was the cupbearer to the king, heard about what was taking place in Jerusalem. Back in Israel, uh, the gates were torn down. The walls were, were torn down. And it needed a rebuild. Remember how he was praying and fasting. And, and then the blessing of the king to provide all that was needed. He traveled, he inspected, put the the team together of the Israelites, and they did the work, rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the gates, put things back into place. Along the way, remember, opposition from without, conflict from within. But then they heard the word of God. God's word was read hour after hour. There were worship services, and the last time that we were together, chapter 9, We saw that part of how they responded in this revival atmosphere to God is they needed to get right with God, to worship God, learn from the past, and then move forward with God. Now, we'll test your memory because it's been a couple of weeks, but the very last verse of chapter 9, we said that it probably would fit better with chapter 10. It was a a little bit of a hint of where we're going. So let me reread that for you. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, we read this. After all of their response to God, getting right with God, we read this. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. They were making a commitment. They were making a declaration, putting it in writing, and our leaders, Levites, and priests are affixing their seals to it. So chapter 9 ended with the fact they were going to make a commitment. Well, what were the commitments? We, we kind of, it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. And so chapter 10, we're going to be taking a look throughout this chapter to see what were a handful of their commitments. They had heard from God. God's word was read. God's word was taught and proclaimed, helping them to understand. And now that they had heard God's word, they realized they weren't living in accordance with God's word. And so they made commitments. Chapter 9, verse 38, that says they're making a binding commitment. So we come to chapter 10. At the very beginning of chapter 10, it says those who sealed it were Nehemiah the governor, Nehemiah as leader. He says, I'm going to sign it. I, as well as the, the rest of us, we are going to commit to these types of things. And then you see the, the list of a bunch of names of priests all the way through verse 8. We're going to kind of skip some of these for time. You can read all of the names. And then in verses 9 to 13, you read names of the Levites. And then leaders in verses 14 through 27. And then as we get into the rest, uh, verse 28, it says the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the law our God. In other words, 
After all that they had heard, they're making this binding agreement, and they're saying, we're serious. Our leader is signing it, the priests, the Levites, the leaders, and all of the rest of the people, they're saying, I'm in. I'm on board with this. I want to do what God says to do. How many of you would say the same thing? I want to do what God says to do. It's a declaration. It's a commitment. Think back in history, history here in the United States. You think about the Mayflower Compact. As they landed at Plymouth Rock, they drew up rules for living in a new land, and they signed it as an agreement. Or maybe you think about the Declaration of Independence, a little bit more famous than that. Some of the closing words say, For the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. People in history have made declarations. They've made commitments. They've put something down in writing and said, here's what we're going to do. It's not just, yeah, I think I might want to, but I declare it and I commit to it. I will do it. So that's really what we're seeing here in chapter 10. So the the overview, if you would, the, the commitments that they're making are personal, they're public, and they're practical. And we're going to see the list of specific things. It's personal. We read all the names of the people and leaders and priests and Levites who are signing it. You ever, you ever wanted to kind of lend your voice to something, but you didn't really want to sign anything? You know, people come around getting signatures or uh, sometimes on social media or on Facebook. You know, if you like something or comment something, now you're, you're basically saying, I agree with this. So how many of you, you've read something you're like, oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm not going to click like. I'm not going to comment. I don't want to get in trouble by some of my other people, some of my other friends. But yeah, I, I agree with that. That's not what these people were doing. They weren't just kind of liking something from afar. It it was personal. I'm going to sign. I'm going to declare this is my commitment. And it was public. I mean, they were doing this in the sight of everybody, right? Everybody could see you're writing down, you're affixing your seal. And it was pretty practical. As we're about to see, the handful of the commitments that they make as we summarize the next number of verses, this was not just a generalized, okay, God, I want to do better. How many of you have ever prayed that prayer to God? You get convicted and you say, okay, God, I want to do a little better tomorrow. Well, that's good. We want to do better. But maybe practical or specific would be better than that, right? God, I pray that you would help me, uh, you know, to, to be careful about my words. God, I pray that you would help me to be a little more kind, a little more loving, uh, some more specific things as opposed to help me to do better. So they were practical. They were specific. Uh, these are all their, uh, their commitments. So we would do well to follow the approach and the attitude that they have. But now you're asking, and now you're probably curious, what were some of their commitments? We're going to take a look here at the rest of the verses of chapter 10 and the commitments that they made. Commitment number one, they committed to follow God's design in marriage. 
Check it out in verse 30. They said, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around or to take their daughters for our sons. Their commitment, their promise, their pledge was, we are going to follow God's plan, God's design for marriage. Now, you bring up marriage. In today's day and culture, you're going to get a lot of different opinions as to what is okay and allowed and legal. But they were wanting to follow God's design. One man, one woman, with God at the heart, God at the center of a relationship. What they're saying is, we're not going to give our daughters in marriage to all of the surrounding peoples, all of the nations around nor are we going to do the same with their daughters for our sons. This is a spiritual concern, not a racial one. This was, this was not about lands or countries. This was about all the nations around, all of the surrounding peoples were what? Immoral, idolatrous pagans who did not have a heart for God. They've been instructed many times previously through God and through his prophets and, and even through the, the Ten Commandments and other issues. They were instructed to make sure that they were marrying and finding individuals who were godly Christians. Individuals who were from the Israelites. You were not to connect with all of these people from all of these other lands. Some of them would do what? Sacrifice children, throwing them alive into the fiery furnace to the God of Molech. I mean, you read through what some of these other lands, other nations, people serving other gods were doing, and you would find all through the Old Testament, unfortunately, they were marrying, intermarrying with all of these people who did not have the heart to serve God. And so they're reading about that. They're hearing all of the instructions. They're saying, we're not going to have spiritual adultery, if you would. We're not going to worship false gods. We're not going to intermarry with all of these people who are serving other gods. We are going to stay committed to the one true God. Marriage is an important commitment. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, just checking. Marriage is an important commitment. And certainly as you raise up a home, as you raise up a family, it's a great vehicle to continue to pass on the faith to future generations for children and for grandchildren that they would hopefully love God, serve God, honor God, and want to live for God, that their children can love God, honor God, serve God, and want to live for God. But when we find somebody else who's not a Christian, who is not having those same types of desires or relationship with God as we do, then what happens? There, there becomes a separation or a split spiritually that can happen. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 and 15 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? 
And so they'd been convicted. They'd heard the word of God. All of this had been read, and they realized they'd not been living that way. They had been intermarrying. There had been a whole bunch of individuals who had been these uh, spouses from neighboring lands who were following and serving other gods. And they declared, we're going to follow God's design in marriage. Now, when it comes to culture, our culture places a premium on physical attraction. True? Whatever adjective you want to use, is he or she hot or not? Gorgeous, pretty, hot, handsome, you name the adjective that fits, and, and decade by decade, you know, different adjectives sometimes, uh, you know, are, are in or out. But hot or not is about as short as you can get word-wise or letters-wise. So much so that when it comes to computers and technology and media, there are apps. I've not been on the apps, but I know there's an app called Tinder. It's pretty well known. What do you do? You look at a photo, and if you're not interested, you swipe left. And if you look at the photo and go, huh, hot, swipe right. You might have a match. Now, outside of Tinder, I mean, there are, you've seen commercials and commercials and apps and apps, all kinds of dating apps. The majority of them are tied to the physical. Now, listen, you should hopefully be attracted to your spouse. That, that's a good thing. But in our culture, that seems to be the only thing. Take a look at a picture. Are they good looking or not? In your mind, in your eyes, is this someone I want to connect with? Swipe left or swipe right. And God's instructions and Nehemiah's challenge and the people's commitment is it's not just about the physical attractiveness. We want to make sure that these are people who love and honor and serve God. Right? It's a challenge. Now, when you talk to young people, and we've, we've been in youth ministry for years and years, you talk to young people, you talk to young adults, even with, with adults, the challenge is, well, how in the world am I going to find someone like that? You got to hang around some places that are like that. If the place that you're hanging around is ungodly, chances are really good, those are the only kinds of individuals you're going to find. Even when you're trying to follow God's plan, it can be a challenge. I've you know, shared over the years a little bit of my story. I went to Bible College and CBC for four years. CBC is now merged with Evangel. Went to Bible College for four years, and there were hundreds of single girls at CBC. There were uh, certainly other Bible colleges and other AG colleges in the local area. I attended James River Assembly of God, a large uh, mega church in the thousands, and lived in Springfield, Missouri, a city of about 150 to 170,000. And uh, as is jokingly uh, referenced, uh, I did not get my ring by spring. That's what they, you know, you go to Bible college and get married. That, that's the, the proverbial thought. I went through four years, did not. 
And I left Springfield, Missouri, city of 150 to 175,000, for Galleon, city of about 10 to 12,000. Left James River Assembly, mega church in the thousands, for my first ministry opportunity at a church a little over 100. And I left CBC, where there were hundreds of single girls within a year or two or three of me, to go to Galleon a church around 100, and if you take out the youth and you take out the seniors, there was, I believe, one person within 10 years of my age at that church. And you start thinking, but God, how? Right? How's it going to happen? How, how are you going to help me to find someone? I made it through four years when you think the odds were pretty much in my favor at CBC and in Springfield and James River, etc. What's going to happen here? The goal is to continue to seek God, to continue to pray, to continue to trust Him, and to follow His design for marriage. And I went through over three years single it wasn't for uh, my senior pastor not trying because uh, he had fun trying to hook me up. Every, every restaurant we went to, that was like the first question he asked the waitress, are you single? And then he'd follow up with, are you Christian? I think he had those backwards, but. And yet what was funny? I leave what seemed to be the, the best potential place in Springfield, CBC, James River, to come to Galleon. And yet it wasn't in either of those places. It was the metropolis of Big Prairie, even smaller than Alger, at family camp in 1999, where I meet Kim. And those years through CBC, not finding somebody, those years single as a youth pastor and associate pastor, all fade away as God provided an incredible spouse in Kim. Now, here's a challenge, because individual after individual, young person, young adult, etc., when they continue to try to live for God, and then they don't find somebody, guess what the temptation is to do? To lower the standards, to compromise, to settle. I'm here to tell you, don't compromise, don't lower your standards, and don't settle for anything less than somebody faithfully committed to the Lord, faithfully committed, in fact, who will love the Lord more than they love you. I'm so blessed to have found that in Kim, and so many of you have found that in your spouse as well. But what are they doing? They're saying, listen, we've not been doing this. Nehemiah chapter 10, we're, Nehemiah chapter 9, we're confessing. Nehemiah chapter 10, we're making commitments. And they're saying, we've not been doing what God said. We're going to make a commitment. Nehemiah, leaders, priests, Levites, people signed it and sealed it. We're not going to compromise anymore, God. We're not going to lower our standards anymore. We're not going to settle and say it's easier to find somebody and just do that from one of these surrounding nations. 
Because God, spiritually, you want us to love and honor and serve you. So commitment number one, they're going to follow God's design in marriage. Commitment number two, observe God's plan for the Sabbath. Check out verse 31. It says, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and cancel all debts. This this concept of the Sabbath, you could say, God had a plan of rest. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's a day set aside to honor God. It's a day of rest, a day of helping others, a day of declaring the truth that God comes first. You go back to the fact that God created the world and everything in it in six days, and what did he do on the seventh? He rested. We're to observe a pattern of rest. Not in a legalistic fashion to say, well, uh, do this, but don't do this, 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 and this. But how are we resting? How are we honoring God? How are we prioritizing God, the worship of God, the the time together uh, in his house with his people? How are we observing God's plan? Are we dedicating and and setting aside time to say, God, I'm going to make sure I'm I'm in your house. I'm going to make sure that I'm I'm resting and, and refreshed. There's a plan of rest that we see. There's also a plan of trust. Because every seventh year, they were foregoing the land and and canceling all debts. And so they would let that land lie idle to kind of restore itself. So on that seventh year, they were not planting. They were not harvesting. You want to talk about trust, right? Year seven... No planting, no harvesting. And then you got to wait till year eight that you plant. And by the end of the year, you're hoping to harvest something. Well, God, how's that going to work? Well, in Scripture, he, he said he was promising to send such a blessing in the sixth year that it would yield enough for three. Are you trusting him? That you you do all of these things for six years, but say no on the seventh. God says, we're going to bless you in the crops on the sixth year, that you've got enough for year six and year seven that you're taking off, and year eight as you're then starting to plant and harvest again. How many of you know that that takes a whole lot of trust? Trust in God. So God's God's plan for the Sabbath, God's plan for canceling debts, it's a plan of rest. It's a plan of trust. Hudson Taylor ministered many years ago. He lived and ministered by this principle. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. That's all about trusting in him. Wouldn't it be the challenge to say, we're going to not work the fields in year seven, and we're going to trust God that year six is going to be good enough to take us through year seven and into year eight. That's trust. We're going to trust God that we're going to cancel all debts every seventh year. 
you know, that person who owed me five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, uh, that debt's going to be canceled. I'm going to trust that we're going we're to be able to continue to move forward. God is blessing. God is providing. Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in self? So these are some commitments. They're saying, God, we're going to follow your design for marriage. God, we're going to observe your plan for the Sabbath. And finally, God, we want to honor your blueprint in our finances. Nehemiah chapter 10, we'll look at uh, verse 32 to the end here. It says, we assume the responsibility for carrying out commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the house, service of the house of God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, for all the duties of the house of our God. 34. We, the priests, Levites, and people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it's written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree, first fruits. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and cattle and herds of flocks to the house of our God, so the priests ministering there. Moreover, we'll bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. First, the Levites who collect tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites where they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tithe of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept, where the ministering priests, gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. All of those specific things together, what are they saying? We're going to honor the blueprint, God, that you've already put into place on how to take care of the house of God. We're going to honor your blueprint for our finances. One of the things that was mentioned there was first fruits. Uh, first fruits, uh, the, the key is that first word, first. Bringing the first fruits is bringing back to the Lord that first portion, which is very opposite to many of today's culture. Today's culture many times is, God, if I've got a little bit left over at the end of the week, God, if I've got a little bit left over at the end of the month, it's all yours. But then through the week and through the month, all kinds of things pop up that catch our eye. And by the end of the week, we apologize to God, say, God, there's just none left for you. The concept of the first fruits is bringing to God his portion first. First fruits. The challenge for us to consider is this. When it comes to our giving and how we respond to the Lord, are we giving what's first or are we given what's left over? Now, there's, there's probably a whole lot of different uh, ideas when it comes to leftovers. Thanksgiving was not too long ago, and Christmas is not too far away. 
So let me just do a quick random poll here, and, and you can just raise your hand. How many of you are big leftover eaters? You eat leftovers. Hands down. Curious. How many of you say, I don't like leftovers? We got, got some of you. Yeah, we got some first fruit people over here. Okay. See, sometimes the approach is up. No, no leftovers. A lot of people do eat leftovers. But when it comes to God, many times the approach is, I'm going to give God what's left over. God somehow comes to the end or to the bottom of our priority. We say, well, you know, there's a lot of needs, and there are. There's a lot of things that we've got to pay to make sure that we continue, hopefully to, to stay in a place, an apartment, a house, wherever you would stay. Uh, there's money that goes with that and utilities and, and vehicles and, and children, etc. clothes. That's important. There's a lot of different things where we use finances for. But the challenge is, many times the approach to God is, I'm going to give God what's left over. If something's left, I'll give it to him. And God's saying the first fruits, this, this aspect of priority is set aside a portion to bring to the house of the Lord to bring to the, the Levites, they will use this. Certainly they had a lot of different uh, offerings. There'd be grain, there would be meats, things that would be used. But the instructions were to bring that first. Now, you can answer this yourself. This is, this is not a hand-raising kind of answer. This is an introspective kind of answer. But what is your priority? When it comes to our finances, when it comes to our time, you can find your priority by taking a look at your bank account and your calendar. How do you utilize your time? And how do you utilize your finances? That, that will tell you your own story. The challenge here, they're saying, listen, we've not been doing this, God. You've been challenging and teaching and equipping that we would bring the first fruits that we would give in these multiple offerings so that all of the, the various things can be taken place. God, we've not been doing that. We've rebuilt the walls. We've rebuilt the, uh, the gates. We've heard your word. We've worshiped. And God, we want to be obedient to you. We want to be obedient in our marriages. We want to be obedient in how we... Uh, view the Sabbath and how we view that. But God, when it comes to our resources and our finances, we want to do what you have spoken about. I want to bring you the first fruits. The challenge as well was to bring the tithe. They mentioned about that in multiple places here. In fact, as well in Malachi chapter 3, we read this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. This is a challenging concept. If you've not given or if you've not given regularly or faithfully this challenge of a tithe, a tithe is 10% returning that back to the Lord, it's challenging because if you've not been living that way and you've been utilizing all 100% for yourself, you say, well, how in the world can I get by setting aside a portion for the Lord? It's that five-letter word again called trust. 
God, I trust that as I bring back and as I return back to you 10%, that leaves me now not with 100%, but with 90. I'm going to trust you. You're going to bless that 10%, and you're going to help me in utilizing my 90 better than I can oversee the 100% myself. That's trust. That's trust. And for many, that's a big, big step of trust. And the Israelites here were saying, we want to tithe. That's, what, that, that's something we've not been doing. God, we want to do that. We are committed to that. In fact, God, I'm going to put my name down, and I'm going to stamp my seal on it. You want to talk about public giving. How many of you would like to kind of put your name down and stamp a seal every time so people knew exactly what you did? But we're able to, to give anonymously. you got an envelope, and no one really knows what's on there. Or you can give online. I've said time after time, I don't know who gives or what. Although some of you have told on yourself for giving or not giving. I get a report that says number-wise, here's what came in in the offering. Here's what came in in the building fund. Here's what came in in missions fund. So I get, I get the numbers and the grand total. I don't see the envelopes. I don't see who gives what. But the challenge is, for many people, am I going to trust God? Am I going to be able to do what God says? Because the thought is, I can't do it. And yet the, the Israelites are saying, God, you've spoken it. We've not been doing, and we commit to do it. Tithing, it's not just that Old Testament issue. In the New Testament, many times it's, it's an even higher standard. Regularly, in proportion, sacrificially, cheerfully, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, Remember this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And a lot of people say, yes, boy, I love that verse. God loves a cheerful giver, and I love them too. Let, let me point some out for you. I mean, we get the fingers. Let's point to other people who are going to cheerfully give so I don't have to. The Israelites here were saying, God, we've not been doing this. We're making a commitment to honor your blueprint. See, the challenge is that we give of our finances not just our time. Because here's a big thing, and I've seen it, and I've heard it in years and years of ministry. People have either explicitly said it or implied it. I either can't give, or because I can't, I will give by working. I will give by serving. I'm going to get involved in ministry. And listen, working and serving in ministry is incredibly important. God calls us to do that. So hear my heart on that. God calls us to get involved in ministry. But let's just be biblical. There is nowhere in God's word where Jesus says, work and you don't have to give. It's not there. We are encouraged to give as well as we are encouraged to serve. Now, let me, let me point your attention here. We've been, we've been spending a lot of time through Nehemiah, week by week, chapter by chapter. What was the main project? The main part of Nehemiah was what? The rebuilding of the walls and gates. 
Do you think that the people of Israel were involved in work and service for the Lord? And it was not just a, a one-hour class. It was not just a, a, you know, taking part in a morning service or Sunday school or kids' church or any of the various options that we have. They were working hours a day, all day, for weeks, manual labor with their hands to rebuild walls and gates. Those are the people who said what? We're going to give. Those are the people who committed. They said, God, we've not been giving. Not only are, going, are we going to work, not, not only are we going to rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates so that this place is going to be good and rebuilt and refreshed, but God, we're going to return the tithe. We're going to bring the offerings. We're going to bring all of what you have talked about, the blueprint for the finances. This was an incredible commitment of giving, after they had an incredible commitment of serving. So, again, just taking a look at the biblical witness of Scripture, I want to challenge you. I don't know where you are in your giving or not giving. What I do know are some of the facts and figures that have been uh, supplied over the years. Gary's done some uh, different statistics on, you know, numbers of uh, members who have given X amount or more, whether that's a tithe or not. But it would be surprising to understand some of the statistics that a good number of individuals who might regularly call this place home give nothing any time during the year. Could you imagine? Just dream with me. Just dream. If every single individual that calls Alger Assembly of God home in person, watching or listening, would return a tithe, return 10% to the church, above and beyond that, to add in some for missions, above and beyond that, adding in towards our rebuild program and, and projects, we would have a problem. The problem might be we wouldn't know what to do with what came in. Now, that, that might be a pretty lofty vision to think about. But I would venture to say that what the Israelites discovered in chapter 10 might be discovered by many in person, watching or listening, to say, are we doing, are we honoring God's blueprint when it comes to our finances? I don't know that, but you can know that. You can know what it is that you're doing or not doing for the Lord. And so I just want to challenge you to be found faithful and honor his blueprint. To give. To give faithfully. Give to God. Give first. Set aside that priority that says, I'm going to make sure that we're going to give and return back to the Lord. And if that means I get less of this and some of that stuff that I might normally spend for myself, God, I, I'm going to put that that faithfulness to you generously but cheerfully Paul wrote generous and cheerful this is not grudgingly this is not writing out a check or st stuffing some some cash in an envelope or doing something digitally eh, that dumb pastor mark don't take it up with me you can read scripture but I want to challenge you to have a heart of 
cheerfulness to say, God, I am thankful for how you've blessed. And God, maybe to jump into that 10% plus uh, offerings and missions and other things is a challenge, but God, I'm going to start somewhere. If I'm not giving, I'm going to start by giving something. If I'm giving something, I'm going to maybe up it by giving more regularly or increasing a little bit or, or adding towards rebuild or adding towards our missions. God's able to work upon your heart wherever you might be. So what are the commitments that Nehemiah and the Israelites made? They committed, number one, we want to follow God's design for marriage. Number two, we want to observe God's plan for the Sabbath. And number three, they said we're going to honor God's blueprint in our finances. 